Good morning, my name is Kyle and I'm one of the pastors here and we are continuing on a study of our uh, looking at our core values and reviewing that as a church, our primary convictions and commitments that drive us. We've talked about how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about his life, death, and resurrection changes absolutely everything. And we believe that. It has the power to change everything, every person, every place, every institution, every single thing in this world. We also talked about the priority of worshipers and worship. Um, you know, in, uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, God sends Moses to Pharaoh, and he says, uh, he brings this message from God, let my people go so they may worship me, they may feast with me on the mountain. And then we get to uh, Jesus and his conversation with uh, the woman at the well in John 4, and he says, the Father seeks worshipers. Worship is one of the primary things that we do as a church, and we are called together in that, and it's a, it's a mysterious and miraculous thing that we're doing here together. But we also have looked at how creation is good, that God didn't make junk, as one author put it, and God doesn't junk that which he made. That even though this world has been tainted by sin, even though we have misused and abused this world, God is here to reconcile every single aspect of this creation, including the molecules on the ground which have already been reconciled in the body of Jesus Christ. You ever thought about that? The lamb that Jesus ate, the fish that he ate when he rose from the dead, that got put into his body the cells that he has, and it now sits on the throne of heaven. See, the stuff of this earth has already been reconciled to God in the person of Jesus Christ, in his very body. And what he has done in his body, he will do for the rest of the created order. That's what we talked about. Creation is good, and God is redeeming it and reconciling it all to himself in Jesus Christ. And now we come to a commitment which is very near and dear and important, and that is that God is on a mission. Not that we have a mission, but God is on a mission. And that we witness and bear witness to that mission. Now, mission, of course, is a, um, now it's a term that that has become ubiquitous. Every company has a mission statement, even though people can't remember what it is. Every church has a mission statement, even though people can't remember what it is. Everyone's got a mission statement. I'm not quite sure why, but we've all got these mission statements, right? Families have mission statements. They're personal mission statements. You can't even remember your personal mission statements, but we have mission statements, right? They're everywhere. And um, uh, and so mission is this ubiquitous thing that's kind of become uninteresting in some ways, not meaningful. And yet, on the other hand, mission is also kind of a loaded term, right? Because we associate it, especially in the church, and people associate it when we talk about the church and mission with imperialism, with cultural dominance, with imposing or forcing your will on others. And so um, so there's lots of... Uh, mission's gotten a bad rap in the church. But I don't think that we can let that word go. I think we have to reclaim it. And the reason is, is because we believe in a God who is purposeful. That is that God has a goal. And he's about seeing that goal come to completion. And that is a mission. 
And so we are going to look at the mission of God today by looking at this very famous passage, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Let me pray for us. God, as we come to your word and we open it up and have these moments together, we ask that you would make it all that you would intend for it to be for us. We ask that you would make it a very encounter with the risen Lord, that we would hear from him, and that he would change us. It's in his name that I do pray, amen. I want to start with a question this morning, and the question that I want to start with is this, um, and it's, it's kind of heavy, so I'm just going to warn you, but the question is, why in our day and time are so many people falling away from the faith? Why in our day and time are so many people falling away from the faith, and not just falling away from the faith, but falling away from the faith rather easily, for reasons that seem rather small, at least that would seem small as we look through the history of the church. Jesus told this parable about someone who goes out. It's the primary parable that he tells to explain all the other parables. It's about someone who goes out sowing seed and they scatter it about. They scatter some on a path. They scatter some on rocky ground. They scatter some on good soil. The stuff on the path obviously does not grow unless it's on the path at my house. And then it seems to grow for some miraculous reason through the concrete. How does that happen? I don't know. But then, you know, some is put on rocky soil and it grows up for a while, but it doesn't really take root, right? And then it's just plucked out. And then some is planted in good soil and it, it, it lasts. Well, Well, Jesus explains this back in Matthew chapter 13, and he says, For what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. As for what is sown among the thorns, we forgot that one, This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You know, it seems to me, as I kind of am looking out and pastoring, as I look at at pastors leaving the faith and pronouncing that they're leaving the faith, as I look at at, at ministry leaders doing it, and as I I look at people in this own congregation who are are struggling, I, I see lots of people in these two groups, these people who seem like they're the rocky soil and seem like they're the, the thorny soil. It's, it's as soon as some type of tribulation comes or some desire that seems to be unmet or some prayer that seems to be unanswered or some, some trial that seems to endure, people are in danger of walking away from the faith. And I want to ask, why is that? It seems to me that there's, there's something, we need to ask this question because there's something deeply wrong. That, that we don't have the roots that we need to have. Right? He has no root in himself, but it endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution or when the winds, like the winds came last night and the night before, sundowners, 
it just blows them right away. And the winds are coming and people are getting blown right away. And by the way, all types of people are getting blown right away. It's a whole generation. It's not just the millennials. Many of the people that I talk to that are in the struggle, that they're boomers. It goes right the way through. It's been this way for a long time. Something's been amiss for a long time. What is it? Well, well maybe I can start by asking, what, what is a Christian even? Some people think that a Christian is simply someone who, who has a certain cultural affinity. If you are from somewhere else in the world, maybe you think that anyone who's a Westerner is a Christian. That's what lots of people in the Middle East think. Or that's what a lot of peop- people in, in the East think. Uh, oh, and That's also what Westerners think, right? I've asked some people, are you a Christian? Well, yes, I was born in a Christian country. Go around England, you ask people. Many people will still say that, Right? Jesus calls the church to make disciples. Disciples. This is what is called the Great Commission. And what Dallas Willard says has become the Great Omission. That we stop making disciples. That that's the problem. And in fact, he goes so far as to say that that it has become part of what we think to be the good news, that you can become a Christian without becoming a disciple. That you can actually become a Christian without following Jesus. That's how far off we are. So Willard says that the greatest issue facing the world today is whether those who by profession or by culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. A disciple. Someone who, by grace and by choice, is following Jesus and learning to live under his reign in every area of life. This is what the church is called to make. Make disciples, Jesus says. So how do we do that? Well, we don't have to ask. He gives us three very direct ways here that I want to go over very simply. First, we make disciples by going. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go. Therefore, go. Get out of yourselves. Go out of your homes. Go out of your families of origin. Go out of your neighborhoods. Go out of your cities. Go even out of your countries. Go and make disciples of all nations. See, Christians are called to move out and to be continually moving out into the world. That's the call. Uh, I don't know if you have read Colin McCann's Let the Great World Spin. It's a wonderful book. And it tells um, a a bunch of seemingly unrelated stories that that are tied together and all revolve around uh, the 1974 tightrope walk uh, between the Twin Towers by uh, Philippe Petit. And there's this 10-page interlude right in the middle of the book, in the very middle of the book, that basically talks about um, uh, Petit's, like, preparing to walk across the Twin Towers. And it's so detailed and so gripping. One foot on the wire. His better foot. The balancing foot. First he slid his toes. Then his soul. 
thin as heel. The cable nestled between his big and second toes for grip. His slippers were thin. The soles made of buffalo hide. He paused there for a moment, pulled the line tighter by the strength of his eyes. He played out the aluminum pole along his hands. The coolness rolled across his palms. The pole was 55 pounds, half the weight of a woman. She moved on his skin like water. He held the bar in muscular memory and one flow and in one flow went forward out into the void, never once losing faith. Step by step, inch by inch, moving out on the tightrope. It's a picture of what Jesus calls us all to do, what he calls his disciples to do to move out, to step out into the world because the centrifugal force of any church and any person is to turn inward and to think about ourselves. But Jesus' call is not for us to pull inward, but for us to move out. Jesus' call is not for us to register those who have miraculously made a self-made pilgrimage into the church and wait for people to come to us. Jesus' call is for us to go and make disciples. Uh, Jesus' call is not for us to wait for people to come to us, but to meet people where they are. Not where we want them to be or expect them to be, but where they actually are. So here's my question. Where is Jesus sending you? Where is he sending you to step out? Where is he calling you to go. For some of you, he's calling you to go two seats down to your kids in the pew to disciple them, to engage them with the love of Jesus. For some of you, he's calling you to go across the church to disciple that person who just, be, just came into the church and doesn't know up from down as it concerns Jesus. For some of you, he's calling you to go across the street or the cubicle. For some of you, he's, he's calling you to, to leave your neighborhood and go to a neighborhood that, that well, the people they, there, they don't look like you or act like you or speak like you. For, for some of you, he's calling you to, to leave your city or, or, or your community. For some of you, he's even calling you to leave your country, to go to other parts of the world, to go out and to make disciples. See, who are we called to go to? The text says all the nations. That is a very misleading, I think, understanding of what Jesus is saying here. We think of nation as a geopolitical entity with a boundary, right? But Jesus says, go out to all the ethne. Ethne is, uh, an ethne was a group of people united by kinship. It's a large family, culture, common traditions, including religious traditions, Every ethne had their own gods. But here's the thing. In Jesus' day, you could have tons of ethne in one city. Ethne wasn't like a different territory. It wasn't Canada or Mexico. It, it, was, it, it was like when you go to high school and you walk into the lunchroom, right? Like the breakfast club. And you've got the goths and the preps and the freaks. And that like, that's the ethne. And Jesus says, go to all the ethne. All the peoples, every type of person in the world, go to them. 
And yes, of course, that includes and will include crossing geopolitical boundaries, but it includes oh so much more than that. Because Jesus, he is for everyone. Not just people that look like us or talk like us or or seem to have the same disposition as us. Jesus is for everyone. And what he's calling for is a transnational, national, multicultural, multi-ethnic community. Christianity is a transnational, pan-cultural, multi-ethnic community. See, because where have you come this morning? Remember this from two, years, two weeks ago. Where have you come? You were in Mount Zion. There are no American flags here. And that's intentional. This is an embassy of heaven. A beachhead of heaven. Yes, located in Santa Barbara, California, in the United States of America. To proclaim the reign of the king in this place. But, but this is a beachhead of Mount Zion. And that is where you come. And that's the community you've come to. And that community, it does not prize any particular culture or language or people even though it has to instantiate itself in a particular language and culture and people to reach that people and culture. But it sits loose with every culture and every language and every people because our allegiance is ultimately to King Jesus who is the Lord of all and who is calling all people because all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth has been given to him. All people are to bow the knee and to come under the reign of King Jesus, including your own people. And sometimes we miss that. We think that the ethne are those people out there, forgetting that we need to be discipled as well. And we need to do discipleship as well. And one of the crises I've been talking about, that I talked about earlier in the Western church, is I think that we forgot that. And we stop discipling. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to go. Go and make disciples. That's the first way that we make disciples. The second way, though, that Jesus tells us to make disciples in this text is that we make disciples by baptizing. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Disciples are made through baptism. Now, that is very odd to many of us. That sounds very strange. Because most of us, the common perception, I think, is that baptism is kind of like this this extra add-on to following Jesus. It's kind of like this thing that you want to do if you want to do something really special for him and show how devoted you are to him, then you get baptized. But it's kind of like this, this, this extra to following Jesus, right? This kind of second step, maybe. Let's take it or leave it. It's for the really committed. It's for those who really want to show to the world who who they are and who they follow. But, But baptism is so intrinsic to discipleship that it's listed as part of the Great Commission. Why? Well, what is baptism? Baptism is a polyvalent and multi um. It's a rich symbol, and there's so much going on, and it's more than a symbol, uh, that there are tons of ways to explain it. But here's what you need to realize. When you are baptized into the name of something, 
you come under the authority of and are identified with that name. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the Israelites were baptized into Moses when they passed through the sea. They're baptized into Moses. What that means is that they're identified with Moses and the covenant that he mediates, and they come under the leadership of Moses and the covenant that he mediates. They come into this people, the people of the covenant that he mediates. And so those who are baptized into Moses are identified with Moses and come under the authority of Moses' leadership. And Jesus says, go out into all the earth and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit into the one name, do you get that? Not names. One name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why we don't baptize into the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit when we baptize here. We baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See the distinction? One God. And when you are baptized into that one God, you come into and under the authority of that one God and you are identified with that one God. He places his name and his authority on you. It's not simply a ceremony to symbolize initiation. Baptism is God's agent of initiation, which gives you access to the life of God and the life of his people. My one safe place the love of God, the family of grace. See, you, you are coming under the reign of King Jesus into the covenant that he mediates. And this has tons of implications. Let me just name a couple. First is this, to become a disciple, you need to be baptized. See, some of you consider yourselves followers of Jesus Christ, and yet you have never been baptized. You may love Jesus. And Jesus loves you. But you have not formalized and formally and visibly become a follower of Jesus Christ until you are baptized. You are not a disciple until you are baptized. That's, that's what this text says. And so, be baptized. Believe and be baptized. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. Second thing is this, baptism is fundamental to a life of following Jesus. I mean, why does he mention it here? A lot of us think of baptism as this thing that happened like long ago that was kind of interesting and it's kind of done with and then we leave, we, we leave it. It's kind of like your driver's license test. It's like, I studied for that, I did it, I took the test, and now I've got the license, I just renew it, I don't even think about it anymore, right? I mean, who thinks about their, their driver's license anymore besides like when someone asks you to pull it out? But the test and the ceremony and all that stuff, you don't think about that anymore. Not so baptism. See, baptism marks you out as God's own. And baptism, baptism makes a continual claim on your life because baptism is a tremendous privilege. In baptism, you are marked out as God's own. You have God as your father. You come into the family of God. And you are anointed with Christ's anointing. And that means that you are anointed as a prophet who confesses the truth about God. You are anointed as a priest 
who offers up your body and your life as a sacrifice and service to God, and you are anointed as a king. A king who with a good and free conscience, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, fights against sin and the devil in this life and, and afterwards reigns with Jesus eternally over all creatures. It's a tremendous privilege. But that tremendous privilege is also a tremendous responsibility that makes a claim on you each and every day of your life. See, because what baptism says is that as a prophet, you must speak the truth in love and continue to confess Jesus as Lord before God and before men. And as a priest, you are to be one who presents your body in service to the Lord and in service to your neighbor, who lays down your life for others. And and as a king, you are called to rule over, righteously rule and lovingly rule over this creation as God would rule over this creation. You are to enact his loving rule. And that claim, that power, it is on you every single day of your life. I had a friend in seminary, and he, um, he grew up in South Carolina, and he grew up in the racial tensions of South Carolina. Um, one time in, in Charleston, where he was growing up, there was particularly high racial tensions, and there was a meeting of concerned citizens there. And his mom, who had always been uh, friends with African Americans, he's, uh, he's white, his uh, mom had always been friends with African She took him to go. And he was very young. He was a young boy at the time. There they met a, a black minister, an African-American minister. And that minister invited them to church and was loving and kind. They went to his church, and that's the person who discipled him throughout his high school years. That minister would go visit him in Clemson, South Carolina at college every year. He would meet with him. He'd take him to lunch. He would pray over his room. His, his fraternity, where he lived, was actually segregationist. It wasn't officially on the books, but everybody knew it by the ways that they would talk and the criteria that they had. At that point in time, there was kind of a, there was a lot of talk about doing away with the Confederate flag, and a lot of his uh, fraternity members felt this kind of affront to their identity, and so they hung flags up everywhere all over the fraternity house. And he had one in his room. And his minister came. And his minister came, and, uh, and he went into his room, and he, and he prayed over the room. And he could see the, the hurt and the pain and the disappointment in the minister's face when he saw this Confederate flag. When he graduated from college, the minister came, and he gave him, he came to his graduation, and he gave him a picture. The picture was of this minister praying with Martin Luther King. And it had hung in his office his whole life, the minister's life. It was like his most prized possession. And he said he gave it to him, in essence, to say, I want you to replace that flag with this picture. That picture now hangs in his house. And it's one of the most visible things in his house. And every day of his life since, he has felt a responsibility because of that relationship, to steward that relationship that he has had and fight for the cause 
of reconciliation. Uh, he's done it in our church. He's done it in his school in Mississippi. He's done it in the town in Mississippi where he lives. Because that picture is not only a symbol, it's a symbol that brings forward the presence of this minister who is now gone into his life and is a reminder and reminds him of the great privilege that he had to know him and to be cared for and to be loved by him, but also the great responsibility that that brings to steward that relationship into the world. That's what baptism does for us. Baptism, in baptism, God marks you as his own. He claims you and, in, and he anoints you and he pours his love on you and then he says, live out this love every day of your life. Respond every day of your life in faith to what I have proclaimed over you in your baptism. Baptism is essential to discipleship and to making disciples. So we make disciples by going. We make disciples by baptizing. Finally, we make disciples by teaching. Verse 20. Jesus says, Go therefore into all the earth. Baptize, um, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And what needs to be taught? Well, most of the time when the Great Commission is taught, I think we think the thing that needs to be taught is kind of the basics of the Christian life in order to convert people because that is what this is about. The Great Commission is about to go out and make converts, right? And so what we need to make converts is, is, the, is the fundamentals, the basics of the Christian life. That's what we do to fulfill the Great Commission. And yet what does Jesus say to teach? Everything. Everything that I have commanded you. And yet he doesn't, does he? He doesn't tell the church to teach everything that I have commanded you. He says to teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And there is a crucial difference. See, the goal is not the passing of, on of information. The goal is an embodied reality. In, in other words, what, what Jesus is calling the church to is to disciple people so that the teaching that Jesus gave is not only known but lived. How long does it take to teach someone to observe everything that Jesus commanded. Not just all the information that he taught, but how to actually enact that information in life. You say, Kyle, that takes a lifetime. Exactly. And that's why the task of discipleship and disciple making is never complete. It is never complete. And that's why, did you notice who it is who it is who he calls to do this? Verse 16. Who comes and gathers around him, meets him at the mountain? He says, and the gurus came. And the experts came. 
And the MDivs and the PhDs and the officers of the church, they came, right? Disciples. It's disciples. Because you never get past being a disciple. You're always a learner yourself. You're always a learner of yourself. yourself. A disciple of Jesus, as Dallas Willard says, are not just those who profess certain views as their own, but apply their growing understanding of the life of the kingdom of heaven into every aspect of their life here on earth. And that means that discipleship and making disciples will always result in a public faith. Every aspect of your life. It is as broad as life itself. You learn to be a disciple in your vocation. You learn to be a disciple of Jesus in your, in your home. You learn to be a disciple as a parent. You learn to be a disciple as a child. You learn to be a disciple as a husband. You learn to be a disciple as a wife. You learn to be a disciple on your rotary club. You learn to be a disciple in your hobbies. Every aspect of life you are learning, what does it mean to enact the reign of King Jesus here? Everything. And how was this done? How can this even be done? Well, it's going to require more than cognition. Because you can know, you can know, you can know how something is done without knowing how to do it. Now, you all know this who cook, right? I mean, how many of you had a grandmother like gra- my grandmother who just had just this amazing dish and that dish has passed away with her. For my grandmother, it was gravy and biscuits. She made gravy and biscuits every day, right? You're thinking, and she didn't make just gravy and biscuits. She made gravy and biscuits with Crisco, right? Lard, okay? That's what made it so good. And, and she, in the cast iron skillet, Every morning, you're like, how did your, parent, your grandparents make it past 60? I do not know. I really don't know. My grandfather also used to like get pickle buckets, and he would fill them up with dirt for exercise and walk up this hill on the back of, the back of his house that was like this, right? I mean, like, he was doing CrossFit before CrossFit was cool, right? World War II vet, just walking up and down the thing. But I, that's what you have to do when you eat Crisco biscuits every day of your life. And they just kind of sat there. They were so good. And like, my mom grew up with my grandmother. She sat in the kitchen with her. She tried to learn how to do it. She got all the instructions. She got the recipe. She watched her. She No. My aunt, she tried to learn how to do it. She grew up with my grandmother. No. My grandfather was pretty good. So after my grandmother passed away, we moved him into our house so we could have the gravy and biscuits every day. It was awesome. But, I mean, now it's like we lost it. No one can do it. And and you know this, right, if you're a cook. Like, you can follow the recipe, but there's something extra. There's something special. There's a finesse there. That's not just about knowing how it's done, but knowing how to do it. If you're a musician, you know this, right? You know that you can know every single chord, and you can know the chord progression, and you can play the chord progression, and you can play it in time, but you may lack the feel. You might not know how to have dynamics in your strumming or know how to break your wrist when you strum. 
So you can play the notes and you can play them in time, but, but something is missing, right? It's not just about cognition. It's an embodied reality. It's about formation. That's what Jesus is calling when he calls us to be a disciple. It's less of a student in a classroom. It's not something that you can get through an online lecture. It's something that can only be achieved through apprenticeship. Mentorship in the kingdom. And, and because you can memorize all that Jesus taught without knowing how to observe it. Let's just give me, let me just give you a couple of examples. Jesus calls us to bless those who curse us. Okay, so here's what you, what does it mean when someone curses us? When does someone curse us? I mean, you, you know, if they flip us the bird uh, when we're driving, is that when they curse us? Like, maybe so. But what does it mean to bless them? What does it mean to bless them in that situation? And, and how do you become one whose natural instinct is to be one who blesses instead of curse, who doesn't retaliate? Jesus taught a lot about lust and sexual integrity. How do we be those who, who, who actually seek the good of our neighbor and we don't exploit them for our own advantage? or see them as objects to be used, but as, as beloved creation to be served? How, how, do we, how do we actually have that disposition? How does that, how does that happen? Jesus calls it to seek reconciliation in the Sermon on the Mount. So much so to leave your gift at the altar and go seek reconciliation. How do we seek rec- reconciliation when the wounds are so deep and they hurt so much, and even getting in the presence of the person or recalling them to mind, you get this kind of physiological flood of emotions, and you can't even think straight. A lot of you know what I'm talking about. How how do you pursue reconciliation in that? See, this requires a deeper knowledge. It requires us to know how to embody the teaching in a particular place at a particular time. And that means it requires, it's not just about giving knowledge, but it's about instilling wisdom. Wisdom, as one of my professors used to define it, is skill and the art of godly living. What we are doing discipleship is we are actually helping people develop skills so that they know how to apply and embody the teaching of Jesus and adapt it and adopt it faithfully as times and situations change because we don't live in first century Palestine. So how do we do this? How do you greet one another with a holy kiss? All that I've commanded you, we have to teach. This not only requires wisdom, it also requires formation and not just information. And that means that a church that is concerned with discipleship, as Jesus calls us to, to make disciples of, uh, of all nations so that we teach them to observe everything that he's commanded, well, that church is going to be, con- it just is concerned with posture as it is with positions. Because it's not just about the truth we hold, it's about how we hold the truth. Because you can hold the right truth in the wrong way, and guess what? You don't have the right truth anymore. Read Job's friends. They had the right truth in the wrong way, and then they had the wrong truth. See, how we hold something is just as important as what we hold. The two are bound together. 
So we have to hold truth and live truth with the posture of compassion and humility that Jesus himself had and would instill upon us with the love that he had. And that means we not only proclaim the gospel, but we promote the gospel with every aspect of our lives. And this will require, discipleship in this manner will require require showing just as much as it does telling. Because that's how Jesus discipled. Jesus didn't say, sign up for this internet class. Jesus said, come, follow me. Jesus said, I want to stay with you tonight. I want to come to your house. And so so this type of discipleship can only work itself out in the context of a community and in developing relationships within that community. So what does this mean? Some of you have asked me, you say, I want to disciple people. Others of you have come to me and you said, I want to be discipled. Okay, that's amazing. That's great. I really think that's wonderful. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Are you willing to make the relational and emotional investments that it takes to make a disciple? Are you willing to make the relational and emotional investments that it takes to be a disciple? Are you willing to invite people into your home to watch you parent? Are you willing to invite people to your work and talk about the situations that you're facing and how you're handling them and how you're seeking Jesus and how you're seeking to learn from Jesus how to handle them? Are you willing to, to invite someone with you into a relationship you're cultivating with an unbeliever? Are you willing to open up your life and to enter into another person's life? Because that's what it takes to teach people to observe everything that I've commanded you. That's what it takes to form people who are skilled and can apply this teaching. Colossians 1.28 says, Jesus we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone fully mature in Christ. That is what we are called to do. But I know some of you are saying, you're saying, wait, Kyle, but, but I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified. I can't do that. Did you notice who he gives this to, this directive? Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Man, 11. Kind of limps along fragilely, doesn't it? It's always supposed to be the 12. It's 11. This is an incomplete church. You know, the church is always incomplete. Church is always a disappointment. The church is always less than it's supposed to be. Yet this is the church. This is the church that Jesus commissions. Listen, I know you're incomplete. I know you're insufficient. Jesus commissions you anyway. And not only is it an incomplete church, it's also it's also a church that that is doubting. Look at verse 17. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Or another translation that's possible is, but all doubted some. Either way, did you ever notice that? And they are seeing Jesus on the Mount of Olives after he's risen from the dead. He's got scars in his hands to prove it. And it says that they worshipped him. And we think, yes, that makes absolute sense. And then it says, and some doubted. And we think, what? How could you doubt? 
But the text is refreshingly honest. It is refreshingly honest because disciples, we live between our lives between worship and doubt. As Dale Bruner said in his commentary, there's never been a worshiper of Jesus who did not doubt him as well. People talk to me and they say, I don't struggle with doubt. And I say, well, do you struggle with sin? Because every time we sin, we're doubting the goodness, power, love, and justice of God for us. Every time. Every time we sin, we're doubting. We all doubt. And yet, how does Jesus respond to these doubters? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. He doesn't plead. He doesn't prove. He just points to himself. Here I am. Here's who I am. Go. You know, we, we have a problem with authority in our culture. Many of us are skeptical of authority, and I totally understand it, because authority is power, and power is abused, and it's been used wrongly, and we've been hurt by it. I understand. And what we want to do then is to try to get rid of all authority. But here's the problem. We can't get rid of all authority because it's intrinsic in the nature of our universe. And so even when we try to like say uh, we don't want authority or this person's uh, abused authority or whatever, that person still has a power over us because most of the time we think that their power can be used for good in our life, which is why we're so resentful of them and so angry at them. Otherwise, we wouldn't be angry. We wouldn't care. But the reason we're angry is we know that people have power. That means they have authority. They have authority that they can act out for good or for harm. The problem with authority is that most of the time it's used for harm, and so we're shell-shocked by that. But we can't get rid of authority. We need authority. You need authority. We all want a loving authority in our lives because we know that someone who is a loving authority, who has that much power, could actually do good to us. But we haven't experienced it, so we're scared of it. So we say, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Get away from me, Jesus. But what does Jesus do with this kind of authority? Matthew eleven twenty seven. he makes a very similar statement. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, or no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone who the Son chooses to reveal. Jesus saying, all things have been handed over to me. I have all power in all the world, even the power to withhold and to reveal knowledge of God. I've got all power in all the world, and what does Jesus do with that power? The next line. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll protect you. I'll fight for you. And I'll love you. That's what I'm going to do with my power. I'm going to lay down my life for you so that you can live. That's what I'm going to do with my power. I'm going to take sin to the grave so that you can be sin-free. I'm going to destroy Satan and all the works of the evil one so that you can live free. That's what I'm going to do with my power. And you know what else I'm going to do with my power? I'm going to tell you to go. In your incomplete, doubting state, go. We go because Jesus is Lord of all, and we go because we need this Jesus and we need to be with him. And he says, verse 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Leslie Newbegin, who was the greatest missionary thinker of the last century, 
said this, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be where Jesus is, uh, to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Some of you are like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in my life? You know where Jesus is? He's discipling the nations. He's on the front lines. And he wants you to join in there. And you need to join in there because he loves you. He's for you. So let's do that. Amen.